Hello and welcome to High Shelf Gaming Podcast. I'm the host, David Gillespie. Every week, I'm joined by my co-host, Rich Wisneski, and we bring on guests to talk about role-playing games and board games and gaming conventions. If this is up your alley, feel free to download, listen, subscribe, and please rate us on iTunes. It really helps people find us. You can also connect with us on Twitter, at High Shelf Gaming, and join our Facebook group, High Shelf Gaming Podcast. It's a closed group, but click to join. We're friendly to everybody, and we'll get you added in. We also have a Discord server to talk games with us all you like. Hey, everyone. This is part two of our interview with Cody Pondsmith, the lead developer for The Witcher tabletop role-playing game. If you haven't listened to part one, I strongly recommend you go back and listen to last week's episode where we introduce Cody, the game, talk about the lore, the process for making the game. This episode, we really pick up right where we left off, kind of in the middle of a sentence, fair warning, and we get into more about the system and about what's coming for the product and some other fun stuff around Cody. So so by all means, uh, please listen to episode one, part one. But if you're here for part two, please sit back and enjoy. Is It's pretty apparent in this system that the folks out there that have no business being in a sword fight, if they're in a sword fight, they're not lasting very long at all. Oh, yeah. Well, also, we wanted to one of the things we wanted to get, which is another thing about having that sort of dark fantasy setting is between the criticals and the healing, we wanted to establish two things. A, if you don't have to fight, you probably shouldn't. And B, even if you think you can win the fight, you probably still want to think about it. You know, if you if you don't have to get into a fight, you can entirely avoid possibly, you know, dying in a horrible manner and even if you are reasonably sure you can take the fight all it takes is one fumble and you could wind up with broken ribs or a ruptured spleen or something like that and now you're going you know i fought this bandit when i could have intimidated them and now i have these penalties so if i fight something bigger later I, I'm not at 100% because I chose to fight this bandit rather than just you know intimidating them or something like that that should have been the speech I gave my players. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, and, and really, you're getting to the heart of something that I think is really important. I, we talk a lot about on this show about lethality in a system and why that's good. And I think that you really just capsulated that because when you're in a system that is not lethal, eh? You know, the, the cost of starting a fight is nothing. I, I'm, well, I'm not going to die, so I might as well just start a fight. Oh, I just have one thought on that which really underscores it. I'm in I'm in a D&D 5 game run by one of my roommates. I wound up in a situation where I had to I was testing the skill of somebody that we had found in a village or something, seeing whether they were really like tough enough to fight the monsters that we were fighting. Mm-hmm. And so I just fought them. Sure. I I I barely bothered with any of the, you know, non-lethal rules. It was literally just like blood live blade combat until both of us were at like 18 hit points and then you know i walked away and i was pay- playing a paladin so i just sort of you know used healing you know lay on hands on myself lay on hands on them and you know that fight which was theoretically that was not first blood that was you know if any, either of us had rolled too high you know that could have been very bad sure you know i just threw that out there as sort of like an offhanded thing. I didn't want people to do that with Witcher. Right. That Yeah, exactly. Like, you can have this approach to combat in these other games that are a lot softer 
on the players yeah. from a lethality perspective and getting into a big fight. Eh, you know, you could kind of like run in and weather the storm for a round or two and then run out. And it's probably you're probably going to live. Yeah. Whereas in this game, it's obvious that every time you go to draw your blade, that's a really big, important decision because a lethal system makes it so that combat is not number one. It, yeah. it forces that you it's not like, oh, my my players are murder hobos like, no, no, no. If they're murder hobos, they're not long for this world, because even if they can generally beat every fight they approach, they're still going to get clocked. They're that's still gonna why we have team. Hackmaster. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, to me, that's why we have systems like this, like Witcher here, where it's like, no, this is truly lethal. And if you decide to get into a fight, you need to know there's real risk for your character. Well, the, the weird side part about this, which, you know, is just sort of on, on my side, sort of amusing. One of the, in sort of a cruel and sadistic way, you know, we have a fairly in-depth character creation system. We actually had one person who said, you know, they want to have it both ways and they want to have this, you know, deadly lethal system where anyone can die at any moment, but they still, you know, the character creation takes you through all this stuff and whatnot. And, you know, I sit there and go, yeah, I want you to get invested in this character because I want you to honestly think about if you're in a dire situation, do you want this person who you know almost personally at this point to die? Right. Are you willing to risk this person that you found out about their friends and you know about their love life and you know how harsh their life has been? Do you want to risk them? Right. You know, because then you think about it as the player. You know, then you think about it as the character. You know, you are, you know, you're thinking about it as a person rather than sort of this is my avatar. If it dies, I can make a new one. No, that's a really good point. And there's I I did notice you put a little note in there about siblings. Hey, if you lose your character, draw on your own siblings. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. I love that. That is so funny. Well, it's a good, it's a good, it, it was carried over from cyberpunk and it's this good sort of situation where you can go, you know, you can have weird dynamics of, you know, depending on how your siblings feel about you, you can swap out and make a fully new character, but still have a tie to the party. Right. If your players, if your, if your party members cared about you, you could, they can give your stuff to your, your new player or, you know, you can walk into it and maybe the sibling that you're playing absolutely despised your previous character. Right, right. So, you know, now they're coming in to get the the previous character's shit, and, you know, they have no investment in your previous character. They just keep going on with whatever they were doing. Maybe they stick with the party because it's, you know, useful for them. Right. You know, maybe they stick with the party because, hey, there's a war on, it's easier to travel in numbers, maybe I need the services of this mage. You know, so it gives you that wide variety and it allows you to kind of play someone who is still tied to your old character, but maybe isn't so tied to your old character that you have to spend a lot of time grieving or, you know, anything like that. Right. I I really love it. I I think that 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 note in there, one, illustrated to people that, hey, your characters could really die. Um, And you you mentioned that early, which is good. And then two, really gives an, an interesting way, like you said, to bring in you know, replacement characters, honestly, um, and make yeah. it so that, Hey, this can still be fun. This is, this can still be dynamic and, and the game can go on and you have a new yeah. way of entering in that still makes sense. Cause people's brothers and sisters would go, I heard my sibling died. I want to find out what happened. I want to, I, I, I want to do something about that. That makes perfect sense. Well, it's, it, I think it's to some extent, it's a weird one because, you know, you can really treat 
player character death in a lot of different ways. You know, I I generally run with the rule that I never I never kill my players. You know, okay, in my home games, I never kill my players. Sure, yeah, I did, <laughs> but you know, because you know, I like to keep one character throughout the the adventure because I usually tie my plots to my characters pretty heavily. But you know, I, there are a lot of systems out there, and you know, especially I love. You know, I guess a uh, quick shout out to uh, to Ragnarok Fate of the Norns. I love the fact that in that system, if your character dies, you know, it's sad, but they have this whole great system of like telling stories about the character and, you know, helping them get into Valhalla. So, I, you know, even when your character dies, I think there should be a certain amount of like they died. But as long as they got to go out pretty cool, then, you know. They went out in a, in a reasonably cool way. You know, you should honor that to some extent. Right. Yeah, of course. Of course. But yeah. Uh, okay. Now, off topic. Okay. How was Gen Con, my friend? Oh, it was amazing and horrifying. Uh, <laughs> to, to give you... Okay. To give you, I'll give you... I'll give you a concept right off the top. I figured that we would have a lot of people who wanted to buy the game. I figured we'd have a line and, you know, people would come up and they'd buy the book they'd head on their way and whatnot first day of gen con we had i think four sales before the show opened to vips that were people from other companies coming over and seeing whether they could buy a copy before the hall opened yes and then some of the vips came in and we had you know a little bit of a line and then i i at least got completely blindsided because the minute the hall opened Everybody came in. We had this line, and it kind of went around the side of our booth. And I went, "Oh, okay. So there's a lot of people here, and we're sitting there, and we're selling the books, and we're you know bringing out stock and whatnot." And then somebody from the Gen Con staff comes over and says, "Hey, you need to manage your line, okay?" And I'm like, "Wait, what?" And I look, he takes me over, and our line, which had kind of disappeared around the edge of our booth because we were on a corner, goes down, and it goes across one of the aisles, and it goes, like, three aisles down. And they're just like, you need to manage your line because it's it's going to eclipse the emergency exit soon, and we're <laughs> going to have to shut you down. So I'm sitting there like, oh, God. And so, you know, because it's oh, like... I can see it. Cody's like a hall monitor. Yeah. It's like... Get over here. Line up there. You, you, move faster. It's <laughs> like it's like me, my wife, and our uh, marketing guy, Aaron. And, like, I'm running back every few minutes and, like, checking the line and making sure that people haven't gone past the emergency doors and making sure they're leaving space for people to go through the halls. And, you know, every time I come back, we have people, like, you know, who... We all have when the line started to die down. We had people who were like, you know, asking questions about the book. And I, I have this thing where because it's my product, anytime I'm sitting at the booth and somebody picks up the book, I like immediately look over and I'm like, hey, if you have any questions, just let me know. So I'm doing that the whole time, and it was just frantic. And then like a few hours in, I had a game, so I had to grab all my stuff and like rush out of the hall. You know, we also saw you on Saturday. We were sitting there playing a little L5R. We gave each other the nod, like. And, you know, you were going between things. I mean, tell me, how much sleep did you get that week, my man? Uh, actually, a fair amount, because basically once the, once the booth shut down, I, I, like, we did dinner and went back okay. to, the, to the hotel. No, it was complete madness, you know, because this, you know, this has been my first uh, published product. Yeah. So I, I had absolutely no concept of what it was going to be like. Yeah, and, 
your first product is such a popular franchise. Oh, yeah. It bridges so many communities between fantasy role play, tabletop role play in general, lethal systems. People are always hungry for new lethal systems, Witcher, the product itself. I mean, you're really bridging a lot. I, I would think you're bridging a lot of different communities. Are, are you seeing that? In your feedback from the audience, is it is it mostly Witcher fans? Is it you know what's your what's your take on terms of like who all has gravitated to the product? We we got a lot of people. We, it's actually kind of funny because we got sort of a breakdown of I think like four people. It was you know diehard Witcher fans who played the video games, for which you know I I would always show them the little section at the back where you can choose your own world state. A little decision I made in like an hour that has paid off a lot. I was like yeah. you know. Because we got to a point, we got to a point where we're just like, "Wow, there have been a lot of options in the Witcher video games. Should we just consolidate this all into one timeline based on what I did in my playthrough?" And I was like, "No, oh, let's just make a chart, a chart at the back." We got book fans who were who were luckily really pleased about all the stuff we did to incorporate the book stuff. We've got, you know, I'm sure you've seen. We've got all the way down to monster rules based on different monsters being uh, being susceptible to silver or meteorite steel, like they are in the books. We got a number of people who are old fans of Telsorian who picked it up because it was the new Telsorian product, and. We'd get people. We got four or five people who came over who were either buying it for a friend or one of their friends said that they should come pick up a copy, which was always funny because they just okay, it sounds yeah. good. You've got your friends have good uh, have good taste. That's right. That's right. That's right. You should <clears> listen to that taste. friend more. <laughs> yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier before we really got started that oh, yeah. you've, got, you've got some new products coming out. You've got kind of a future of the product of the product line. Can you is there anything you can divulge now about what is the future for the Witcher RPG for you guys? Well, uh, what I can say is uh, I can say a few things. First off, uh, this will definitely get a lot of support if I get it my way. I I played a number of, of role-playing games in the past that got, you know, one book and then maybe two supplements and then never got supported after that. And it always breaks my heart. And I love the world so much, and Lisa loves the world so much, that we will definitely be touching on it. You know, this book probably used to be 50 pages longer, but there was stuff I had to take out to meet the page deadline. <laughs> so we've got stuff to talk about. It's probably going to be over a certain amount of time but uh you know i've got i think nine supplements in my head right now that i love to write everything from more information about witchers to sort of more complicated magic rules if you want to deal with it how it's always talked about in the books with sort of each each element of magic having its own personality obviously bestiaries i'm actually working on a bestiary right now which will have more representations from all the types of monsters, and maybe even we'll get to touch on some of the more complicated monsters, like true dragons and doppelgangers and things like that. And like talking, maybe if I could ask a little bit more about their ecology and the way they organize and that kind of thing? Possible. With a a bestiary book, we'll have a lot more room to talk about the monsters. You know, we kind of gave a short a short sort of blurb about all the monsters in the in the core book but that's because you know it's the core book we wanted we needed i'm not going to say want we needed to have some monsters in there it's a personal pet peeve when a core book comes out and doesn't have any monsters for me i i really wanted to make sure that you could play every bit of the witcher with the core book but yeah we'll probably have a bit more room to talk about that as well as maybe expound a little bit on the monster types in general and like what they all have in common 
I've got, you know, a lot of fun stuff to work out. Someday I'm going to have to stat out the Elder Blood, but I'm not looking forward to that. Um, <laughs> we're going to be doing probably a number of, uh, of adventures. I'm kind of looking at a few right now that I'm kind of looking at setting up in perhaps some form of adventure book. But yeah, there will be a lot of support for it. It just kind of comes down to what I get permission to do. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. And I, I imagine that the popularity of this certainly helps that, you know, the more oh, yes. people who pick up the, the core book, that means there's more room in here, more justification in here for more supplements, more, more support. Oh, yeah, definitely. It'll be a, it's been a successful launch and it has a lot of interest. I have a lot of people asking about support for the for the line. So, you know, I, I can definitely see this being a, a long and fruitful line for, uh, for Talsorian. Anything else you want to share about kind of the, the Witcher launch, the product, and, and kind of the future of, of the product? Gosh, no, I mean, I'm, I'm really excited for it to get this much, you know, this much feedback. I'm really excited for to have people really enjoying the game. You know, uh, it's, <laughs> it's corny as all hell, but you know, half of the reason, half of my sort of drive behind this was when I uh, first started working on the project, you know, a lot of the thought process was like, what a, you know, people are going to want to play this game. People will eventually wind up playing this game. What do they want to do in it? So I, I spent, you know, hours out of a lot of days, uh, going through and finding everybody's Witcher OCs and everybody, all the characters people had written for Witcher, you know, yeah. in their own personal situations. And I compiled a ton of those in a big folder. I just kind of went through them and I looked at them like, okay, so, you know, this idea is popular. And, you know, a lot of the driving force, especially when I got sort of, you know, when the project was dragging on or, or something like that was, you know, I want everybody who sat down and made you know, made a Witcher OC and commissioned some artist to draw them to eventually be able to play that character, you know, as, as uh, your sort of quote unquote official Witcher character. So I'm, I'm really glad to see people doing that. I'm glad to see people getting out and playing the game um, and having their own adventures because the whole goal was to let people go you know definitely there's a lot of opportunity in there for you to play out Geralt's adventures and whatnot but I wanted everybody to be able to play out their own adventures that they could then you know pass on stories of and whatnot that is so so freaking cool dude I, I I you know the the interesting thing about this I'm so glad one that you were able to make time for us but two it's so evident the level of passion and drive that you had the amount of research you did not only for the game world and the system but also looking into other people's products their own creations to say yeah I want this person who I've never met to also have room in my world and room in the yeah. creation that I've made like that is just just a neat way to look at this to say i know who my people are and they're telling me what they want because they're doing this in other systems and all i have to do is just give them a place where that that can be done and that is so cool of you to do it's really yeah. neat. well i enjoy i enjoy role-playing for my ability to live out adventures that i'd never be able to live out in the real world and i want to give people that opportunity yeah absolutely absolutely that's so cool you know, okay, so I did have a question around the way that combat can kind of scale in complexity. Because yeah. when you go through the combat system, there's the basic skill 
roll, you know, active passive defense or active defense and then, you know, damage, not damage, that kind of thing. But then you yeah. get into like character facing, whether or not they're wearing a, a helm with restricted vision. Can you kind of detail for me, like, you know, a player who's just getting started, where would you yeah. like them to, to begin? And then when should they start adding in some of these more intricate rules? It kind of depends on like what they are used to dealing with. You know, there are a lot of people, for instance, I run with a group who normally does Pathfinder D&D, kind of sort of that level. And even when they do Pathfinder, they don't really go into really the particularly complex parts of Pathfinder combat. Um, so what I generally do is I deal with standard fast strike, strong strike, aiming for locations or random hit. And, you know, some of the some of the slightly more complicated things, like I do a little bit of vision cones and things like that. To some extent, a lot of that you can leave on the cutting room floor if your players are more comfortable without it. It doesn't debalance things that much, really. And then you kind of phase it in. One of the things I like to do in my table games when I run games straight like Gen Con or, or Gamma or something like that is I like to just say, like, OK, this is your basic. Here's like here's how you attack. If you want to do anything else, tell me what you want to do, and I'll tell you how you do it. So at that point, if somebody's like, I want to, di- I want to knock the sword out of their hand, then I'll, I'll reference the disarm rules and be like, okay, this is how you do it. So you can kind of sneak that stuff in there without having to say, okay, now read this 20 pages and memorize it all. You can just be like... <laughs> Okay, if you want to do this, this is how you do it. And then a few right. rounds later, somebody's like, I want to trip my opponent. And you're like, okay, this is how you do that. So it allows you to kind of phase it in over time. You're only going to get one or two players who want to go to that level of complexity. But, you know, that level of complexity is there for those players. You know, I remember way, way, way back when I was playing in a Pathfinder game, I played a fighter for the first time. And for a really long time, it was really boring because I just run up and, you know, I'd hit somebody and, you know, they'd hit right. me and I'd hit them. They hit me. And then I started actually looking at like maneuvers and things. And I started carrying different weapons for different scenarios. Right. And the, the character became so much more fun. What? You just do not have a big sword in this game? Yeah. Um, so I, I wanted to give people that opportunity. You know, you may only have one player who does it, but that one player who does it can run in there and start, you know, doing pommel strikes and disarming people and charging and push kicks and things like that. And that makes them feel like a badass. And then as they start doing that, your players, your other players may learn through osmosis and go like, okay, well, you know, this guy does these things a lot. I've seen him do them a lot, so I know how they're done. Maybe I'll start kind of working that into how I do my thing. That's a that's a great point there that like as a DM, whenever you're running the game, there's so much room here for a leading by example. Where you say, oh, yeah. yeah, this mage does this fantastical thing. And the ma- and the magic user is like, wait, can I do that? It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, go check over there. It's like, oh, OK, I want to start doing that. That's so that's so brilliant. That's a really neat way to kind of sneak in little bits of rules, you know, kind of throughout the game. So they don't have to start off knowing everything. I, yeah. I do like that approach. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The system is designed to be a variable level of complexity because we knew that there would be a lot of people coming into this who had either never played a role-playing game before and just played the video games or 
maybe played a very system light role playing game in the past. So we wanted to give you that option of like, okay, it can be very simple if you want it to be, but if you want that level of complexity, you can kind of work up to it as you go. Right. And this is so this is one thing that I see a lot of people will talk about in the DM circles. They'll say, you know, cutting something from a system, nobody freaks out at that. You say, look, I don't want to deal with encumbrance. Nobody bats an eye when you say I don't want to deal with encumbrance. I don't want to deal with, uh, you know, uh, vision cones. OK, probably nobody's going to bat an eye at that. But the moment a DM says, hey, I invented this new rule set that goes into a game like I invented a criticals table. Everyone's yeah. going to say, dude. Your criticals table is probably completely OP and probably doesn't fit into the world at all. So I like that in this system, you have you have levels of complexity so that when somebody says, look, I really want to deal with vision cone mechanics, you've already got those in there. So all they have to do is just start paying attention to those rules. They don't need to go off and invent rules for themselves. They can just start using them because you've already got them in there. You've got that nice gradation of complexity that allows people to say, yeah, our game kind of stops at around this point or our game goes all the way to the end. We want all of it. Um, That's really neat. There's a lot to be said for the fact that if you sit down and make your own, you know, critical table, it's probably going to be busted. You know, a surprising amount of work goes into becoming a competent game designer. I've run a lot of Pathfinder third or not third third party classes that I look at and go, you know, this really isn't designed super well. So I wanted, you know, you you have that already designed by somebody who you know knows a certain amount about being game designers. So you know, yeah, if you want to use it, you don't have to sit down and rewrite how it goes or try to figure out and extrapolate how it goes. Especially since the behind the scenes is that there are about six million sub rules in this book that only I know. There are a million things where I designed I designed a rule to function a certain way because of something that only I know about the system. Hmm. You know, m- players may figure it out over time, but you know, stuff like I, you know, players will eventually figure out how I statted out some of the monster stuff, but only I really know how I statted out those monsters. And is that because you have like a a holistic view of how all these things interact with one another? So you're saying whenever a player makes a character a certain way, they're actually touching on all these little rules that you have in your head. And the reason it's worded this certain way is because you're trying to make it so that they're not going to dip into a power spike that is unintentional. All of that needs to make sense. And so you've got a ton of rules in the back of your head of how all that kind of came together that we would never see. To, to some extent, you know, I will I will be the first to say that, you know, if you unleashed a really top tier min maxer on the system, they could probably create a horrifying god, uh, the likes of which no one has ever seen. Because Witcher is kind of a system. Witcher is kind of a world and has always been portrayed as a world of bonuses. You know, witchers drink potions to give them certain bonuses. They put blade oils on their blades to give them certain bonuses. You know, so it's very much a system of using those bonuses to your advantage. So, yeah, I will someday fully, fully unleash my wife on this, who is currently the worst min-maxer I know. (laughs) And she'll probably create something absolutely horrifying. But, yeah, there are little things in there, you know, like vision cones, for instance. You know, I put those rules in for for restricted vision you know a reality i spent (laughs) a lot of the things in this book i have personally tested (laughs) with Um, your physical body you have tested these things that is exactly (laughs) what i thought about 
you know, the vote, the vision cone discussion came up and you were like, yo, bro, just put this thing on. I got to, I got to this vision cone thing and I had, first off, you had to wonder why witchers never wear helmets. And second off, I actually went out with, with one of my roommates and I put on an old visored Barbuda style helmet that I have and fought them and said, wow, my visibility in this is terrible. I I can I can barely see anything, man. So a lot of that was tested, and a lot of that is so that yeah, if you if you armor up really heavy and you're wearing a full suit of plate armor, you know there's a certain amount of balancing just based on the fact that you will turn n- like ninety percent of weapons just based on the amount of SP that you have, the amount of stopping power you have. So you know there are certain things built in there to mean that you can't you know run in and buy a full suit of plate armor and then just be completely unstoppable right there is a trade-off yeah it's basically this amazing global balancing act where anything you change could debalance something else and to some extent you know that's that's i think the grandest problem because you'll especially on a project you've been working on for five years you'll change something you'll have changed something at some point Mm -hmm. and not realize that you changed it so you know it'll debalance something somewhere else. So it's very, very care. This very, very careful balancing act, effectively, and that's I think why third-party stuff is often a little bit difficult because the person creating that third-party stuff is not part of that balancing act right. until the minute they get into it. Right, and they don't they don't really understand how a PC truly balances against a monster because they didn't write both of those rules. They're writing some you know new PC archetype or new uh, rule set for for a PC class that they invented, and they're not they're not hip to well when this class or when this thing runs up against a monster, there's a whole new set of interactions that maybe weren't weren't planned out in the system itself. So now it's a, a broken thing. Yeah. That being said, I do want to go on record as saying that I do heavily support third-party stuff. I just think that you do have to have a certain solid knowledge of game design to make really solid third-party stuff. But so, do you guys have anybody approaching you for third-party uh, content? Are they saying, "Hey, I'd like to, I'd like to make a third-party product"? Is there a license? Is there a, a a pro tip guide that you've got for them, or anything along those lines? It's a very tricky situation because we are we are licensed by CDPR. So anyone we license, we sublicense, and they are very very specific about who gets the license and who doesn't. I haven't dealt with that very much, though. We I have been excited to see people doing things like making form fillable character sheets and you know flowcharts for combat and stuff like that. Because, you know, I'm excited to see that fan interaction. You know, as we saw you when we were playing L5R, and you were taking a break between your press junkets. <laughs> uh-huh. And I'm going to say your wife's name's Tara. Yeah. Good. I just wanted to make sure I got that right. Yeah, you're good. I think you were about to do a live stream. And, you know, you mentioned she's the master of min-max. Are we going to see a title with you two on it in the future? Oh, I have no idea, but I should... I. I'm I'm very proud of this story, so I have to tell you. Yeah, Tara is the worst min-maxer I have ever met, to the point where uh, my other players, when I run Pathfinder games, actually just have her level up their characters. <laughs> um, I this, I, I, fix me. <laughs> Yeah, she they just hand her their character sheets and she would go she would go set them up. But this all came from I got Tara into role playing a while ago. 
I started her in Pathfinder, which was probably not a great idea because I love Pathfinder, but first edition is not like a super great starting point for, for new players. And There's a lot going on. I also put her in a game with two veteran role players, specifically my mother and father, who I, if you ever have the, the opportunity to have Mike Pondsmith in a game, just be prepared. You know, I also, I, I made three core mistakes, which is, you know, that, having her in there in Pathfinder first game, and I also let her play a witch, which is arguably one of the harder sort of support classes to play. This all came together to her basically coming back every, like, every day and asking me some question about the system, just constantly. And I did this for a few weeks, and eventually I got really fed up, and I, I just gave her my copy of the core book, and I said, just read the book. Anything you need to know will be in the book, I promise. And so she sat down and read the Pathfinder core book cover to cover. Wow. She then restatted her character based on sort of what she had learned, and it all came down at you know, sort of one of the big sort of plot climaxes of my game. I had them all out there. They were on their airship traveling through. I think they were in sort of like this ice plane. And they had been battling this this goddess of winter and death. And they had become a real thorn in her side. So she sent this uh, this sort of, it was sort of like a phoenix, but this sort of ice-based phoenix, this sort of corrupted phoenix towards them. It appeared out of the ether, you know, as large as their airship and, you know, about to, to strike them down. And she flew out and she was just like, okay, I'm going to hit it with Enervate and I'm going to put this meta magic on it and this meta magic on it. And I, and she was just like, did all this calculation and it was just like, and I dropped it by nine levels. And I'm just, I just look at her like, really? Really? That is excellent. <laughs> Throw her into the deep end of the pool as a witch. And boy, did she learn to swim. And she came out of that. And I'm sitting, you know, she came out of that game as this amazing terror who like laid siege to a city, like almost single-handedly. And, you know, just this absolute terror of a character. But from that moment on, she was the go-to min-maxer for Pathfinder for my entire group. That is awesome. You, okay, one, I love that you also have a DM story where we've... This is a running theme here at High Shelf. Okay. We, we all of us DMs, have this story where it's like, all right, my big badass throws the <laughs> biggest lieutenant at the party, and it's going to be great. It's going to be this drag-out fight that's going to get people maybe killed i don't know and then one player says cool on my first turn the lieutenant dies <laughs> <laughs> and you're like what no i there's how did this happen i i love it i love that you have the same exact story oh gosh I, I think every I think every GM has that story because you always there's always one player that you just don't keep a close enough eye on you know <laughs> Beautiful. I love it, dude. That's so fun. That's a, that's that she's a, she sounds like an awesome player. Oh yeah. I would also be kind of intimidated to run for that player, but uh, would love to play with her. <laughs> that oh yeah. Like uh, she's on my team. We're going to be fine. This will be great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> be good. Dude, this has been so rewarding and so much fun. I, in the future, at some point, I would love to have you back if you guys are open to it. Yeah, totally. I'd wait till you have a listen of the edit before you say that. <laughs> okay, fine. I'll wait. <laughs> it, <laughs> come on, man. It'll be good. Um, 
But yeah, like this has been so much fun and I know you guys are going to be doing a lot of great stuff. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you guys being so giving with us and going as deep as you have been with us on this and really kind of letting us and our audience get a sense of behind the scenes, some of the stuff that's going on, some of the stuff that's going to be coming and and really where your where your thought process was on a lot of different things. I, I, and I really do appreciate you, you uh, making that for us. Great. Well, I had a great time. You guys are fun. Good. Oh, that's good. That's the best compliment in the the world. Thank you so much. Everyone at home, we're going to go ahead and end it here. Cody, is there a place for people to find you or get in contact with you? How folks that are interested in this and want to get engaged and want to get plugged in with Arl Telsirian and you in this project? Cody on the tweeters. (laughs) how, How how do how do people reach out to you? So we have a an Artelsorian Games Facebook site where we have, a, I think we actually have a fan group set up specifically for Witcher. We're on Discord at Artelsorian, I believe. I that. Our social media god, Jay, recently set that up. We are at Artelsorian on a WordPress, and we also have a Shopify site for other books. We do sort of periodic updates every once in a while on the WordPress and on the Shopify blog. But it sounds like from what Jay is saying that the the Facebook and the Discord are really sort of the most the most hopping for sort of fan interaction. Thank you for that. We'll definitely keep all that in. And we're going to link to all that in our show notes. So folks, if you want to get access to their Discord, get links to their Facebook groups, all that stuff is going to be in our show notes. We're going to definitely link to all those, make it easy for our audience to, to get connected and get plugged in. For everyone else at home... Have fun and play well. May all your roles be crits. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by me, David Gillespie, with music provided by Taylor Guillory. Our web presence is managed by Amy Nelson. And if you like our style, please leave a review for us on iTunes. It's the best way to help people find us. Most importantly, though, feel welcome to connect with us on Twitter, our Facebook group, Discord server, our Friday night Twitch streams, and our website, all under the name High Shelf Gaming. We really look forward to talking and playing games with you.